It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir. Yes, they lay claim to me, though there are days we wonder why. <laughs> Great to have you with us. It's another edition of Lifeline for a Wednesday, the 21st of March. Is this uh, typically spring of sprung today, right? 21st, 22nd? 22nd. No, 21st. 21st of March. Jarrell, you're not sure because you're looking at me. You're looking out the window saying it doesn't look like spring to me. Looks more like late January. It does, doesn't it? We got another, yep, another big storm rolling in tonight and uh, might even have some raindrops falling on your roadway before the traffic is over with and you're home safe and sound. So uh, hang out with us, would you? We've got Michael Bennett standing by with an update on traffic throughout our conversation this evening, every 10 minutes. And uh, by the time it's all said and done, good time had by all. Coming up uh, later on in this hour, we're going to talk to one of a handful of the only female professors that work at Dallas Theological Seminary. And um, I'm looking forward to this conversation because Professor Sandra Glon has put together a team of theologians from Dallas that have taken a look at the roles of prominent women within Scripture. And in a day and an age when I think, and rightfully so, at least the Western culture is beginning to ask serious questions about the way we treat women, the positions that we uh, put them in, um, all of this controversy related to uh, everything from uh, pay gaps to the Me Too movement. And you have to wonder if sometimes perhaps we have not had a bit of a distorted viewpoint about women for a very long time. Coming up later on tonight, Professor Sandra Glan will join us. She has edited together this new book compiled by some of the leading theologians at Dallas Theological Seminary, taking a look at Vindicating the Vixens, Revisiting Sexualized, Vilified, and Marginalized Women, of the Bible, something I'm looking forward to. So we'll get to that conversation coming up a little bit later on. This is part of a battle related to not only what your tax dollars go to support, but also a battle in relationship to trying to restore a bit of common sense, which is (laughs) seemingly on the endangered species list, at least in relationship to the California state legislature, as um, they are now pushing an effort to require campus health centers at public universities provide abortion pills. Now, this is, um, this is much more than a morning-after pill. It is in the category of an abortifacient. And, of course, they want your tax dollars to pay for it. So we've invited Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, to tell us a bit about Senate Bill 320, what it purports to do, what it actually does, and why it's so dangerous. Brian, thank you for being with us. Let's talk a bit about this bill. This is essentially going to mandate on-campus access to abortion pills. I have to wonder, at what age do we consider adults to be responsible enough where they can manage their own reproductive health on their own without having to look to the California state taxpayer to deal with it, especially when there's a bit of a whoops that's been involved and suddenly they desire to have an abortion. And yet here we are with a bill that would suggest that we ought to turn campuses into pharmaceutical supply houses. What's going on with this? 
Well, Craig, I've, uh, I don't know how your connection is on your end. It's very difficult to hear you. Terrell may need to reconnect us. But if you can hear me, um, yeah, Senate Bill 320 would basically make every California state college and university a dispensary for this very, very powerful artificial steroid that really it, it works by attacking the young mother's body first. That's how it ends the life of that child in the womb. So this is just an extraordinary leap in the abortion mentality and the use of government resources uh, to get to these young mothers. But are you able to hear me? I'm having a hard time hearing you for some reason. Yeah, you're, you're coming through just fine, Brian. No problem on our end at all. Of course, if he can't hear me, Jarrell, that might be an argument that he can't respond to my questions. Why don't you go ahead and redial him? Uh, can you do that right quick here? Uh, we'll see how, how long I can vamp for while uh, Jarrell gets Brian Johnston back on the phone here. If you've tuned in just a tad late, we're talking with Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Senate Bill 320 would mandate on-campus access to abortion pills, abortifacients here in California at uh, public universities all across our state. And, of course, uh, you have the honor of paying for all of it with the taxpayer dollars. Uh, this bill was introduced just about a year ago uh, by Connie Leva, and it would essentially mean that um, all the public health centers located at the University of California and California State University campuses um, stock drugs prescribed for so-called medically induced abortions, abortifacients, um, more commonly known as RU486. You're familiar with it. And uh, th- this bill, you know, once again, taking another step toward forcing not only taxpayers in the state to support abortion, but now we're going to turn all of our universities into essentially middle miniature abortion mills. Uh, that essentially is what this measure is attempting to do. Um, Brian, how likely is it that this thing is going to make its way to the governor's desk for his signature? Where do things stand? Well, as you know, when we look at these types of bills, uh, the Supreme Court, in fact, is hearing a California bill. It was the AB 770. The makeup of our legislature is so radical at this point. I hate to say it, but it puts the odds pretty high. And we know this governor is is very much a pro-abortion governor. So it in, in one sense, in sheer counting of noses, it doesn't look that good, Craig. But on the other side of the coin, the facts, which is what we really believe need to be presented, we've always presented this as a self-evident truth. The right to life is based on objective facts. And the objective facts of this very, very powerful drug that's designed to end a human life is it's kind of startling, and it has killed women. There's, in fact, a, a young woman from the Bay Area that died from RU46 two years ago. And this is a very dangerous drug. There's still some likelihood that other folks, other than pro-life folks, are uncomfortable with this. The state university uh, hasn't fully signed off that they want to do this. And that's an amazing thing, because... Typically, they're more than willing to accommodate because these legislators are the ones that give them all the law money. And yet, these legislators now are asking the state college and university system to do something they're really not, they're not there for. 
And so uh, I have yet to see where that's at. The last hearing that was on this, uh, they were taking a, a, a look-at attitude. They hadn't signed off in full approval. So we're looking at the facts of what's involved. It's as much as you and I are personally opposed to human abortion, and for very, very good reasons. Um, there's folks that are looking at this in outside of the moral realm and are just looking at the very practical implications of this, and that's a good sign. Uh, a straight-up-and-down vote on the abortion aspect of it would not be that positive. And so right now we're asking folks that want to oppose this to emphasize the dangers of these drugs and the danger and the, this new world, you might say, that that uh, higher education is moving into, where, where basically they're facilitating um, this very bizarre form of abortion. Again, bizarre because there's no abortionist there. This young mother has to see the result of what she's done. It's a very alarming procedure, and the more you read about it, um, there's a great website, and it's produced in the Bay Area by the father of the young woman that died. It's called abortionpillrisks.org, abortionpillrisks.org. He's not a pro-life man, but he lost his daughter to this drug, and he didn't even know she was taking it. So this is a real, this is a step beyond just our personal convictions. This is the government moving into an area that they really shouldn't be involved in. Well, and not only that, but, you know, it, it also strikes me, as you've pointed out, and we've had these discussions for many, many years, going back to the initial um, introduction of RU486 to the, the public market, that while the FDA approved it, um, it has proven to have a very spotty history in terms of its effectiveness, its efficiency, and, you know, let's make no mistake about it. This is not the morning after pill. This is an abortifacient. It actually induces a, it's a medically induced abortion, uh, albeit clearly very early on in the first trimester. But as Brian just pointed out, it is not without risks. And not only are the risks, of course, you know, 100% inherent to um, the child, but uh, the risks are also pretty severe for the woman taking the abortifacient and doing so in an environment absent any sort of medical oversight or supervision. Um, on a, a personal moral conviction note, I, I, I don't agree with it. But even if you set that aside for a moment, as Brian says, and talk strictly about the risk factor involved here, um, so we're going to provide abortifacients now on college campuses, university campuses here in California. We're going to provide no means by which we might protect the health of the woman should something go amiss. And then what, open up the state to liability? I mean, at what point did we draw the line and say, look, University campuses are for learning. Hospitals are for practicing medicine. And we know more should be opening up reading rooms and math labs at local hospitals than we should be opening up abortion clinics at universities. And yet that mentality seems to be present with the California state legislature, who I suppose would like to have public education sort of be a be-all, end-all. And, uh, you know, before you know it, we take the uh, parents right out of the entire picture at K through 12, and now we're taking common sense out of the picture at levels of higher education. Brian, can you stay with us for a moment? Sure. I, I want to go a little bit deeper on this. 
uh, because I think it's important for listeners to be aware of just exactly what it is we're talking about here and why it's important for you to have your voice heard by the California State Legislature on this particular topic of Senate Bill 320. We're talking with Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Let's take a quick time out. We'll come back to more of our discussion and reasons why you need to get involved as Lifeline continues. Right now, though, it's 517. We've been asked to step aside here for a moment and give a chance for Michael Bennett to come on in with an update on your Wednesday commute. Michael, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When RU486 was first made available and approved by the FDA, my goodness, probably 20 years ago, many of us at the time warned that a lot of the data was either incomplete or inaccurate in relationship to the risks that this would present to women. And we have subsequently in um, the ensuing years um, sadly seen demonstrations of that being the case. Certainly from a pro-life perspective, RU486 is a lethal drug in terms of what it does to the life of the baby. But sadly, it's also on occasions proven itself to be a lethal drug when it comes to the mother. And it essentially, and I, I don't want to get too detailed here because it's, uh, you know, commute time and I, 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 I don't want to send people home with a a sick feeling to their stomach, Brian Johnston, but it, this essentially in, in induces a miscarriage, does it not? I mean, isn't that kind of basically the, the, the premise behind the way, the medical way that RU486 functions? It does. It's actually, to be honest, two different drugs that are taken in combination. The first is mifepristone, which is a very powerful artificial steroid. And, and what it does, basically, is it tells a woman's body Again, we, we all know this, we all know the birds and the bees, that a woman is actually designed to carry children, to be a mother. And in many ways, it fulfills her womanly aspect, having a child. And what mifepristone does, once a woman finds out she is pregnant, this has to be taken, it can't be taken before seven weeks. So it has to be taken after seven weeks along. So this isn't, you know, this, the, the baby's there. So mifeprestone is designed to alter her body first, and it tells her body, nope, you're, you're just cut off all those hormones that say that you're a mother. You're not going to provide any nutrition to the uterus. We're changing all of that. So it, it alters the woman's body first. But then afterwards, usually three or four days later, there's a second regimen, and this is becoming known now as as interrupting RU-46 or reversing RU-46, again, because what happens two or three days later is they have to take the second regimen of misopristol. And misopristol does what you described, Greg, is it, is it then causes a very spontaneous uh, miscarriage. It forces that whatever is in her uterus out, and whatever is going on, it just, it, and so often, uh, a lot more than the baby is expelled. Every every aspect of what's in her uterus, a lot of blood clotting that happens then. Very, I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but go to abortionpillrisks.org, excuse me, dot org, and it's all described there. And again, that's not a pro-life website. This is a website designed by the father who lost his daughter to this drug. So, uh, yes, quick summation. 
RU-486 can actually be reversed if you don't take that second regimen and then quit taking mifepristone, um, the mom's body's going to go back to wanting to do what it's designed to do, which is nurture that baby. As I say, the, the not, only, not only is this a lethal chemical um, concoction on behalf of the, the, the child, but I've got to imagine that the potential, we've talked about the potential short-term risk that can lead to death, but I would wonder just how much research has been done in terms of the potential long-term risk, particularly if a woman sees this as kind of a, you know, a, a convenient way to deal with an unplanned pregnancy. And if they have taken this concoction on multiple occasions, I would wonder what the research would look like in terms of um, the potential impact on the reproductive system and, and not to mention the, the mental and, and, and well-being of a mother uh, should this be this concoction be used multiple times? It's it's really a dangerous. Dr- I mean, the, the women that have died or have gone into septic shock because of the dramatic the dramatic impact on their bodies, particularly the second part of the regimen, misoprostol, is that it's very it's it it forces the woman's body to do that, and and that is very uh, and it's not at her timing. And so some of the stories, I won't go into it, but it's very unpleasant when you hear what some of these women have been through. It was not what they were expected. They're not prepared for this this sudden um, rejection of of from in their deepest part of their body. And it's just, it's unpleasant to think about. I don't like talking about it. But if we don't, we won't understand what's at stake. Where, where does the so liability again, lie in all of this? I mean, let, let, let's assume, worst-case scenario, that somehow Senate Bill 320 makes it to the governor's desk, gets signed. I, I would hope that were that the case, that um, pro-life organizations would come against it and would challenge it in court. But let's assume it becomes yeah. law. And now all of a sudden we have um, basically... <laughs> Centers of education prescribing this drug. What happens if something goes wrong? Well, who is there to look out for the woman? Who is there to make sure that nothing goes wrong or that if something does go awry, that a woman is able to find immediate medical attention? Well, that's exactly the question. And again, I have yet to see that state universities have actually signed on. They were very guarded. They do not like to oppose legislators. Uh, again, that that's their bread and butter, and so it was interesting at the last hearing that they had not. They're looking at it, but they had not yet signed on in their support. And again, this would be the people who are distributing it. I imagine should they, and I'm sure that the abortion industry is looking how to cover them, what kind of insurance they can get, because that's going to be a big question. Craig, is is what are the implications for these guys? They're the distributors now. Uh, and really, that's it's you and me paying for it as taxpayers. But uh, unfortunately, they've gotten around it before. We know that right now you and I as taxpayers pay for the abortions that happen. Many of the abortions throughout California are government paid for and sponsored. And, and often parents don't know if it's a minor, that the girl has been taken out. And it's it's really amazing when you see the amount of abuse that goes on because of the name of choice and because of the cultural worship of this as an essential item of life. And as you know, what's used culturally, and we almost hear that in, in Mrs. Clinton's speeches, even abroad, well, all this is women's rights. So just shut up, no other discussion. We're talking about women's rights. And yet the actual 
facts of what take place aren't being examined. The folks aren't being held accountable. And and so there, there's a lot more here than meets the eye, and that's why it is hard to talk about these things. But if we don't talk about them, we can't let the culture just sweep it under the rug. And I think years from now, people will look back at this era and say, how could that have happened? Uh, you know, it has happened, but I'm very optimistic. If I could change just slightly, but I know that the Supreme Court has just heard a California bill, AB 770. And it's amazing, but even the pro-abortion justices, Alana Kagan, expressed extreme skepticism regarding forcing pro-life pregnancy centers to promote abortion. Yet that bill was passed by a sweeping margin in California, and the the Ninth District Court of Appeals upheld it, but the Supreme Court is saying, well, wait a second, how far are you going to go? With the appointment of, of um, Justice Gorsuch and possibly other appointments, we're going to see a change in the courts. And with that change, I believe a cultural message is being sent. We're seeing that happening across the nation. California's an exception. We know that. It's a very tough state culturally. There's a lot of craziness that's presented as truth. But these truths are not self-evident truths that they're presenting. In fact, much of the madness that, that's coming out of California is the opposite of self-evident truth. They, they're, they're going in other directions. And we're going to see the basic principles that America has been built on. We're going to see them return, and, and particularly comes to abortion, because it's such a violation of the human person. It's a violation of nature. And, and I think that, that, God willing, we're going to see it in our lifetime, and, and maybe sooner than later. So that's usually how these things happen. And uh, we know there's other cases going up to the high court. We know that many states are, are passing very, very pro-life laws. Many of them won't be upheld, but there are laws that are, that are bubbling up that when the right court is in place, they will be upheld and a row will be overturned. And then our work in California, it's going to get pretty serious, but I believe we're going to win in California. Well, and it certainly is going to be a matter of continuing to be uh, vigilant and not growing weary. I know sometimes you look at some legislation passed in other states. Of course, there's some challenges going on with the most recent legislation passed. Uh, But California, it's an uphill battle, but it's a battle that is winnable. And at the end of the day, listen, you, you don't get the option to vote whether or not, well, we'll we're going to vote if we think we can win, and if we don't think we can win, why bother? No, it doesn't work that way. So we've got to be consistent, we have to be vigilant, and we have to be engaged. And uh, we urge you then on the basis of our discussion here today to be in contact with your member of the California State Legislature and urge he or she to vote against Senate Bill 320, that's SB 320. More information available, californiaprolife.org, californiaprolife.org. Our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, for that update. 531. Let's get you an update now on traffic. It's not Tony Bennett, it's Michael Bennett. (laughs) You left your heart in San Francisco, and I think somebody left a tire on the 880. Let's see what's going on out there. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. These days, it's very much a topic in the center of the news. Everything from glass ceilings to equitable pay, equal pay for equal work, to the Me Too movement. Raising questions about the historical manner in which, quite frankly, Western society 
has treated women. And I, and I specify that. I realize that there are other societies and cultures, uh, particularly in the Middle East, that have an even worse reputation. But let's not talk about them for the moment because we can't do anything for the moment to change any of that. But we can change ourselves and the way we not only view women and relate to women. And, and perhaps part of that is to get a more historically accurate understanding of the role of women. Sadly enough, there have been branches of Christendom down through the years that have misused Scripture in order to justify less than equal treatment of women. And let's face it, there are some pictures that we have even in Scripture of women that are not all that complimentary. Think of the Samaritan woman or Bathsheba or Mary Magdalene. But at the end of the day, are they really as rebellious and naughty as we've come to think? Well, there's a new book that tackles that very question called Vindicating the Fixins. I love that title. Revisiting Sexualized, Vilified, and Marginalized Women of the Bible. This is a new compilation put together by a number of leading theologians. And we're joined now by the editor. She is, by the way, editor-in-chief of Dallas Theological Seminary's award-winning magazine, Kindred Spirit. She serves as a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And we are pleased to have with us today Professor Dr. Sandra Glon. And Dr. Glon, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. I'm happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. What a fascinating and timely topic. And I suppose at a level I would say it must have taken some thought to come up with this idea. But at the end of the day, given everything that's going on within Western uh, society and culture, probably high time that we do take a look at this topic from, from this perspective. You know, we've been working on this book for 10 years, so it had absolutely nothing to do with us in terms of timing, but it's been very interesting to see how timely the message has been of just re-looking at, at these women, as you said, who we've misinterpreted and it's affected in many places are how we treat women as a result. So in a sense, the, the book was almost prophetic. And, um, <laughs> in a sense, yeah. And in terms of the timing, let's let's spend some time taking a look at this, because one of the things that you do, and quite frankly, it should always be done when it comes to Scripture and proper application of God's Word. And, you know, sometimes there's sort of this almost uh, novice approach that says, well, God said it, and that settles it, I believe it, that settles it, the Bible says it, so forth. And we, we apply what we think is the proper interpretation of Scripture, and sometimes we use it for proof texting. So we've come yeah. to a conclusion now, let's go let's find a, a Scripture that seems to support our position so we can feel good about ourselves. And yet at the end of the day, as we're taking a look at the whole counsel of God, we really need to contextualize it, don't we, in terms of right. the, uh, the who, what, when, where, why, and hows? Right, Yeah. So the first chapter, we had an Australian scholar who looked at how should we read the Bible, and where did we go wrong in terms of some of our mistakes. And so we're not, what we're not in this group is a bunch of radical feminists coming and sort of re, wrongly reinterpreting the Bible. What we're actually trying to do is call people back to a historical grammatical method of looking at it and just the plain sense of the language. And when the text says that David sent plural men for Bathsheba, and he gets confronted by a prophet who says, you're the man, and there's, like, no mention of her guilt, you know, start paying attention to the details in the text, because there's a bigger message happening here. 
part of the sense of marginalization of women um, is certainly historical and cultural, but we've also seen in history cases where women have often been marginalized in religious circles. And is part of that because of some of the, the erroneous application of the way we not only read but interpret and apply Scripture? That was, that was certainly the thesis of the guy who, the scholar who wrote the chapter on Eve. He said that we have looked at Eve, and we have, we have made gender principles from the way that she and Adam sinned, instead of just focusing on the fact that both of them, in their unique ways, were in rebellion against God. And the challenge of that is, therefore, we conclude, ironically, not only are women more easily deceived, but they're also better at deception, which is a logical fallacy if you think about it. You can't be both excellent at deceiving and also really duped easily, you know. Um, but that's what we have done with Eve. We've extrapolated the way in which she fell into sin and made it make a statement about what all women are like. And not everybody does this, but in many contexts, that sort of logic has been used. And so it's affected trust. It's, it's made made us look at women and think, you know, what's their agenda? What's, how are they deceiving me? How are they being sly here? And, of course, the irony is that this goes right back to the Garden of Eden, this notion that we uh, somehow tried to deny our nakedness. Um, certainly that was very much in play, as well as this notion of scapegoating. Hey, it's not really my fault. Eve started right. this all. Right. If she just hadn't gotten into that conversation with the serpent, none of this mess would have ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> Which misses the point, because it's, both of them fall into sin. And so our takeaway from that is all humans are in rebellion against their Creator, instead of all women are deceptive, and all men are to blame, or all men are blamers, right? I mean, exactly what you just said. is, is we, we miss the point of the story by focusing in on a gendered interpretation of how to read it. Well, not only do we miss the point of the story, but I think we also help to prove God's point. And that yeah. is that in our, our, in our effort to try to escape any culpability here, uh, we, we've once again tried to shift blame here, which has been part of the problem from day one. Uh, we're all blamers and hiders in some way, for sure. You're right. You're right. It, it, it's fascinating, too, I think, in, in terms of the broader application of um, what you and the scholars have gathered together inside of the pages of Vindicating the Vixens, not only in terms of looking at um, some of the historical misapplication of our understanding of women and their roles, not only historically within Scripture, but certainly within culture and society, but then, too, I think the broader lesson of putting all of this back into proper and appropriate context, which I think is healthy when we're talking about this topic or any other in relationship to what we um, extract from the Bible and then apply to our own lives. It's easy just to say, well, I'm going to read it and uh, just take it at face value and give no second thought to it in terms of the proper application. That's kind of the, the lazy man's way out, isn't it? As opposed to saying, okay, what was being written? Who was doing the writing? To whom was it written? Why was it being written? When was it written? Where was it written? All of these questions that help give us a really deeper understanding that I think ultimately will help us better apply the text to our daily lives, doesn't it? Absolutely. Context is so essential. And the fact that we are 21st century Westerners that are pretty much in, from a position of privilege reading these texts. Here, here's a great example. Um, the woman at the well that you, the, that you mentioned as you introduced me, the, the typical tra understanding of that is that this woman has dumped five husbands and, and is now living with a guy. 
And yet every Easter we hear that women didn't walk into a court of law. Their testimony wasn't believed. And so we know that detail about the culture, but we haven't connected it to her. So if you plug in that with the fact that the number one cause of death for men was war, and you also plug in that in our culture we don't have concubines and polygamy most of the time, but in Palestine then they did, then you come back to the story and say, what if this woman is older? What if she's been multiply widowed? What if she's been dumped a time or two and she hasn't done the divorcing because she can't just walk into a court of law, and now she has to share a husband in order to eat? That changes not only our view of her, but it changes our view of how Jesus talks to people. Instead of approaching her on her sin, he's talking to her with compassion for all the heartbreak she's been through. I've had friends that sometimes have said, well, gee, um, Roman Catholics tend to... uh, overemphasize the role that that Mary played um, in in early Christendom, and yet it's it's perhaps in many ways um, a good um, point upon which to rebalance our focus in the understanding that as much as so many aspects of organized religion have worked very hard to marginalize women, that women are to be subservient and in the home caring for the kids, and it's a man's world out there, um, is it an interesting to note, and perhaps by no accident, that while we might argue on one hand, well, as I said earlier, with tongue firmly planted in cheek, that Eve started this whole mess, isn't it unique to determine or to, to ascertain that while God, being God, could have just, you know, snapped his finger and Jesus could have materialized on planet Earth. No, instead he he chose to allow his only begotten son to have a very human birth and that that child was carried to term by Mary for all nine months and that while some might argue that women helped to bring sin into the world, isn't it interesting too to note that a woman helped bring the the solution to sin into the world as well. Ah, yes. That Jesus had a mother is really remarkable. And and Protestants, the reason we have in that subtitle, Marginalized Women of the Bible, Mary, the Virgin Mary, is a great example of, she's the fourth most mentioned person uh, in the New Testament. But as a, as a pendulum swing against what many Protestants see as Mary worship, they go the other extreme, and we know, I've never been to a Bible study on women in the Bible that included her. But the fourth most mentioned person, and, and the most mentioned woman in the New Testament, doesn't even show up in our Bible studies on typically about women in the Bible, because you know, we go the other extreme. And, and in doing so, we really miss a really stellar person whose life we could emulate. And isn't it interesting to note, too, that while we are quick to uh, cite other women, and we'll talk about, uh, you know, others, uh, Sarah, for example, with great glowing terms, and yet you got to wonder, wow, not only did she have this huge burden uh, essentially to be ostracized potentially uh, within her community because essentially this is a child for which it's very difficult to explain how it is that uh, she became a great with child when she hadn't had relations with Joseph and suddenly she finds herself pregnant. But then to understand that the person that was closest to Jesus during his formative years, uh, particularly early on, 
uh, would have been his mother, as Joseph, uh, the father, was busy as a carpenter, you know, earning a living to care for his his young family. And you're right. We we tend sometimes in our effort to say, oh, we don't want to look like the Roman Catholics and take this thing overboard, end up missing out on the lessons and examples of what is arguably the greatest woman of all history. Probably, yeah. I, I, I think if I had to choose one, she's it, yeah. You're right. Gave birth to Jesus. Kind of, kind of hard, kind of hard to 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 do a one upman on that. If you just joined us, we're pleased to visit tonight with Professor Dr. Sandra Green. She is the editor of um, the award-winning magazine Kindred Spirit, which is published by Dallas Theological Seminary. She's, by the way, one of only five women professors on staff at Dallas Theological Seminary, and um, we're talking about this new book that she has. Uh, edited called Vindicating the Vixens, Revisiting Sexualized, Vilified, and Marginalized Women of the Bible. If some of the guys in the audience are very uncomfortable right now, I'm glad. We're going to make you a little, we're here, what's the old saying? We're here to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. (laughs) Stay tuned. We're going to come back and have Dr. Glon share a couple of uh, her favorite examples with us as our conversation continues right here on KFAX. Hey, I'll mention, by the way, the book is newly published, available by Kriegel, and you can uh, get a copy of The Usual Suspects, Bay Area Bookstores, or through Amazon.com. All right, let's check things out on the roads, the latest with Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation with us today is Professor Dr. Sandra Glan, she is the editor of the newly released Vindicating the Vixens, Revisiting Sexualized, Vilified, and Marginalized Women of the Bible, and essentially gathered um, a number of uh, notable theologians to uh, come together, take a look at these women, revisit the historical treatment of them, and to essentially realign them with more accurate interpretation of Scripture. I'll mention, by the way, that Dr. Glan has 1520 best-selling uh, titles nearly to her own credit, but serves as editor for this important new work. And, and as all of this was being gathered together, and I would imagine there must have been some very um, riveting and engaging conversations, getting all these theologians together and, and talking about the various characters and <coughs> how we needed to uh, present them. What were some of the ones that, for you personally, Dr. Glan, were kind of the big highlights? Um, I think probably the first one would be Mary Magdalene. If you think about, we go to extremes on her we either see her as portrayed as the wife of Jesus or the girlfriend of Jesus and Jesus Christ superstar to the other extreme where, you know, she's a reformed prostitute, neither of which are at all accurate. All the text says about her is that uh, Jesus healed her of seven, seven evil spirits and that she was one of the entourage that traveled and supported him out of his, her means, which suggests she was probably also widowed and older if she had independent income. Um, so we should probably not picture her as a 23-year-old. We should probably picture her, you know, much older than that. And she, like the Virgin Mary or the Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, is a devoted follower of Christ and gets to be the first one to herald the good news to the disciples. So um, she's somebody I sort of rediscovered in the process. And, and certainly I think that, you know, the, oftentimes the, the characterization, I, I, I think of um, the, the scene in Scripture uh, with the oil. 
And there oftentimes when that passage is quoted, it's almost with a wink, wink, nod, nod, as if to somehow suggest that there was something untoward going on there. Right. So it it kind of started with Gregory the Great back in the 6th century. There are three different Marys. One of them uh, is anointing him. One of them is Mary Magdalene. One of them is Mary of Bethany, who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And, you know, Gregory the Great was using scrolls. He he didn't have the, the search engines that we have today. So it would be very easy if there are 50 different references to a Mary in the New Testament to conflate them, which is exactly what happened. He conflated all of them, and for centuries, everybody thought they were the same person. The Roman Catholic Church uh, corrected that in the 1960s, but Mel Gibson didn't get the word. It's been very slow to, to spread. And, and so for centuries, all three of those Marys have been, as I said, conflated, and we need to separate them out because there are three women worthy of our respect, not just one. Um, what about characters like uh, Tamar and Rahab? So the thing that was so interesting to me about Tamar is that in the process of looking at Tamar's story, Judah is actually vindicated us in a sense. Um, all the pastors are preaching through the book of Genesis. They focus on the Joseph story, and the Tamar story comes sort of, it's treated like an interrupted in that in the Joseph story, and in fact, sometimes people don't even preach on it; because they just skip it. Yeah, they almost—it's like what it's like the, the attorneys say, exactly. "We're going to have a sidebar here." Yeah, exactly. And so we miss that—the pivot point in Ju- in Judah's life. Judah has sold his brother off to slavery. We've followed his brother in slavery, and now we come back to Judah, and we see how low he has stooped. He's the one through whom the Messiah has come, and he's not that interested in making sure he has progeny. But his Canaanite daughter-in-law does care. Oh, the irony of this. You know, it's the outsider that shouldn't be caring that does, while the insider with all these great promises doesn't. But when, when it all comes to light, what she has done to make sure that the line will go on, he says to her, you're the righteous one, not me. And the very next time we see him, he's offering his life in exchange for that of Benjamin, the brother of the, you know, the, the full brother of the, of the half-brother that he sold off to slavery. He has had a major change in his life to go from selling somebody to slavery to offering your life in exchange. And the pivot point is this encounter with somebody who should not be more righteous than he is, but is, but values the thing he should be valuing. So I loved that Carolyn Custis James did that chapter, and I loved how she she really, it, it didn't end up at all a men-bashing thing. It really vindicated both Tamar and Judah in the process. All right, but let, let me give point. you a name now that, that, that I know and some listeners are thinking, too. Oh, I got a name that you are not going to be able to resurrect out of the bad reputation. And clearly we all know Bathsheba, she set David up. <laughs> what about Bathsheba? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we did not set out to vindicate every vixen. Some of them don't need vindicating. Potiphar's wife doesn't deserve to be vindicated. You know what I'm saying? But Bathsheba, so when you come to the Bathsheba story, um, we have to pull the camera back and say, what is the author of this book trying to show? 
And in the narrative, we're following the life of David. He's come off the backside of the wilderness. He just loves God. He's a worshiper of God. And then he gets power, and he starts abusing it. And so the passage begins within the, in the spring of the year when kings go out to fight, and you should be thinking, so what's David doing on the palace, you know, balcony? And the next thing he's doing is he's spotting this woman, and he asks who she is. Well, you know, the, the palace is, is on the high point of town, so he's going to be looking into everybody's rooftops. And the text doesn't say that she was unclothed. It says she was washing, which is the same word that is used for washing your hands. Um, but, but any gentleman should just look the other way. Like, if she's in the privacy, even if it's on the rooftop, which is typically where people would bathe, they didn't use a bathtub in the ancient Near East. There wasn't that much water. So, you know, he asks his guys, who is this woman? And they kind of warn him, like, well, she's the wife of one of your, like, best warriors and the daughter of one of your great advisors. In other words, like, don't mess with her. And so he sends men, plural, to get her and bring her. There's no conversation with her. She is not hanging out of the palace trying to seduce him. There's nothing in the text that suggests she has any agency. And now that we know a lot more about differentials of power in relationships, like Bill Clinton with an intern, uh, you know, or a youth pastor with, with a teenager, we, we know a little more about factoring in who has more responsibility. It's always the person that's in more power that has more responsibility. So, so Bathsheba, not only, um, not only does David help himself to Bathsheba, but then when he finds out she's pregnant, he has her husband basically killed. And the text says that Bathsheba mourned for her husband. But we just gloss over that little detail and, and somehow come up with a story that this is her fault when there's nothing, not one word in the text that suggests that it is her fault. That's not to say some women don't seduce men. You know, we see that in Proverbs, some of them do. But this one didn't. And by blaming her, we often get in the habit of just asking people, what were you wearing? What did you do to evoke this response? And we blame the victims instead of putting the responsibility on the person who should not have abused power. Well, and and sadly, and yet very realistically, uh, no doubt many of the women in the audience uh, will say, well, you know, that's what men do. <laughs> this is really working towards setting the record straight. And as Dr. Glon just mentioned, it's not an effort to try and um, broad brush stroke uh, whitewash and clean up the reputation of every single woman with a questionable background or behavior in Scripture. It doesn't do this at all. What it does is revisits the historical interpretation, or better put, the historical understanding that we have had. And instead of just kind of taking things at whatever seems to be convenient based on culture and history, instead says, okay, let's put this in proper and appropriate context. Let's look at these characters within Scripture, both in terms of who the author was, to whom the author was writing, when it was being written, where it was being written, why it was being written, and then extrapolate out of that with with a little bit more illumination in the interpretation, a clearer, cleaner, quite frankly, less chauvinistic understanding of who some of these figures were. And many of them, as Dr. Glon mentioned a moment ago, we, we've kind of missed out on some tremendous lessons here 
because we have tried to either throw the baby out with a bathwater or, you know, kill the gnat with a 5,000-pound sledgehammer. And so this book helps to set the record straight. Looking at Vindicating the Vixens, Revisiting Sexualized, Vilified, and Marginalized Women of the Bible. Its editor, Dr. Sandra Glahn from Dallas Theological Seminary. Again, the book is published by Kriegel, and you can get it to bookstores around the Bay Area. You can also go to Aspire, the number two dot com. That's Aspire two dot com, or of course through Amazon as well. And Dr. Glon, thanks so much for the time. It's been a delight. We're here at six oh two. Let's step aside, get you updated on some traffic, and of course a look at headline. But first, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center with Michael Bennett. Michael. <laughs> 